Anxiety and stress can severely impact our sleep. Whether you're up late thinking about that embarrassing thing you said nine years ago, or you're generally plagued about the current state of the world, you might not be getting the best sleep possible. When I need a little help in that department, I turn to Jupiter CBD. CBD oil for me works fast and it works well. It doesn't give me a head high or make me paranoid. It just works to relax me. And one of my favorite parts about Jupiter CBD oil is that it's certified organic and incredibly clean, which you can taste. They work with only one farm in Vermont and really take care of their product. Jupiter is giving my listeners 10% off using code Brittany, that's B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, when you go to getjupiter.com. I'll also put the link in the show notes if you feel the stress starting to well up and want to give it a shot. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Momstead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a month I interview a new guest who's lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. But this month, I'm going daddy again. I interviewed my old roommate and first friend when I moved to Los Angeles, Christian Correa. Christian is a creator in New Jersey. He's incredibly creative. He paints, he writes, he plays music, he does comedy. Probably the most creative person I've ever met, as well as one of the kindest. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So my father, what a guy, interesting character. So he was born in Jersey City, New Jersey. So North, Northern New Jersey, right outside of New York. Everyone called him Pops. I still don't know what his nickname like means. Nobody really knows. Pops Correa, but his name was Servando and his um, mother and father, I think they were both from Puerto Rico. I'm bad at family history stuff. And what I garner from, from him getting older is I don't, like my dad was the least Spanish, Spanish person I can think of. He spoke Spanish, like he understood it and his parents didn't speak English, but he didn't like speak it to us at all. We didn't have a lot of relatives from that side of the family. And I, I feel like at that time, for some reason, it feels to me like he wanted to assimilate, if that makes sense. He did a lot of things, but he was actually a DJ. <laughs> That's actually how he met my mom. It's so weird because if you knew my mom, you'd be like, oh, you met my dad at a club <laughs> DJing. And then they moved to Atlantic City, New Jersey when the casinos opened. So casinos opened in Atlantic City in 1978, Resorts Casino. He was one of the first dealers. So that was huge. I mean, you know, casinos opening outside of Las Vegas was a really big thing. There's a really cool picture of him in the paper with like a little Afro and a goatee. <laughs> My dad was kind of an enigma. He was there for everything. Went to all the games. And that was the thing I used to joke about on stage, which was like people that complain about their parents never going to anything. I had the opposite, which was like he came to everything and just yelled at us. <laughs> Whereas some people would be like, you, you, you'd be happy that he showed up to all this stuff. I was like, oh, you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll you see about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was great. Like he was supportive. Um, he was a big yeller at me and my brother. I had very, so I have a brother that's two years older than me who was like super nerd, straight A's, you know, just like he was a little angel boy and I was not. So I had very high standards to live up to. I remember I would get grounded if I got like a C 
<laughs> I was like, what? Because my friends were like <laughs> D students. <laughs> And I'd be like, all A's, a B, and a C. And they'd be like, well, you're not going out. I was like, what? Like, it didn't make sense <laughs> to me. But, you know, like that, you know, they, I guess they wanted me to do well to succeed. And I did well. And, you know, I feel like I was a smart child. But, you know, it was, it was a little hard on us at certain times. You know, in hindsight, it makes sense because I see some of my friends who weren't, people weren't hard on and they're not doing too hot. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's what another interesting story is like, I don't know if you have this, but like growing up, there were people that, you know, your parents would be like, hey, I don't want you hanging out with this guy or this this person. And you're like, what? Jeff's great or whatever. And then as you grow up, you're like, oh, yeah, Jeff's not that great. <laughs> Just, <laughs> they were kind of right about I'm um, staying away from from that guy. <laughs> I'm glad I called that guy. <laughs> I'm glad I stayed away from that guy. But no, so that was it. So, and you know, it's the same thing. It's all that hindsight. It's all the growth. It's all the different lenses where like in the thick of it, having to be home an hour before everyone else, it felt oppressive and, and not fun. Funny story. My, my mother worked at the school that I went to. She was, she worked for the principal for the school that I went to. It was like, I think it was eighth grade. It was going into the summer of eighth grade. Um, I think I got like a C or a D and my mother actually, not like through the school, not like illegally for my transcripts, but like on her little typewriter changed it to a B so I wouldn't get grounded for the summer. My father unbeknownst to him, or maybe he's watching me do this right now and he's like, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) My mother and father were both actually married to other people before they got married. Yeah. So my father was married to a woman and my mother was married to a man. Um, (laughs) But he actually had a child. So I have an older sister. We kind of, we knew he was married before and we knew he had a daughter. And we never really thought about it because we never saw her, right? But then one day when I'm like in the teens, she's in like her mid twenties, she like finds him or like reaches out to him. I don't know if it was like find him. But what it kind of opened up for us is like, oh, wait, is my dad a deadbeat dad? Like, was he sending her money the whole time? Like, I have no idea. It's still a mystery. But it was just a not talked about part of my thing. And like I said, and then she came and visited us and we met and she looked like him. It was really weird. She was super nice into art. And um, yeah. And she then had a goatee. she had a goatee and an afro. <laughs> exactly. She was a DJ. It was uncanny. She was married to my mom. my father's side of the family has had heart problems like running through it like a river (laughs) and she actually passed away like a few years later oh wow at like 28 and i'm at the time like 16 and my first thought is like well that's that's what's gonna happen to us like so i think that's where my anxiety kicked in (laughs) You know, I wasn't close to her, but having somebody like in my family, that's, you know, a sister of mine pass away at such a young age to be like, oh, that's a possibility. Because at 15, you're like, oh, you're immortal. To kind of explain my father in a nutshell, (laughs) my dad had two strokes and a heart transplant. And then also after that, still smoked two packs a day. (laughs) So (laughs) so I guess stubborn's the word, (laughs) but... Um, two packs of Carlton 100s <laughs> back to back. That guy could light them up quick. <laughs> I don't know if you, you ever experienced that, but like as a child of the 80s, it was just there were just like cigarettes at the breakfast table. 
It was funny growing up and smoking in the house and smoking in restaurants and casinos and whatnot. Yeah. And I was a smoker. I smoked I smoked a pack a day till oh, I, I remember. for years. Yeah, oh, I remember. And what was interesting was I smoked a lot. I think like when I moved to California, there wasn't smoking. So you got kind of used to having no smoke. And then the first bar I went to back with smoking was the one across the street from Second City in Chicago. What is that called? I think it starts with a W. Uh, well, there's Old Town Ale House. I, there's, I, uh, I think it was that one. But there was still smoking yeah. in there. And I remember walking into that bar and being like, we used to do this on purpose. Because like, yeah. you forget how <laughs> disgusting a smoke filled, but even as a smoker. Just like yeah. ashing over people's shoulders. and It's interesting, though, because I wonder if like, you started smoking, you know, obviously because it was something that was so mm -hmm. omnipresent in your life. And then you you quitting smoking because I remember we lived together at the time when you quit smoking mm -hmm. um, and you smoked way more than me. Like I didn't smoke a lot, but I was like, I'll quit, too. Yeah. But I wonder if if giving up smoking was kind of like a like a closing the chapter of of that connection in a way. It, it, it was. In a sense, uh, like you mean with you mean w like with smoking and the father and, and all the smoking. Yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting was there's a book called The Easy Way to Quit Smoking, which I highly recommend if anyone is listening and smokes cigarettes. It's a <laughs> it's a boring, terribly boring and not greatly written book in terms of like if you're looking for wonderful prose. But what it does is it slowly slowly dismantles like chapter by chapter, any reason you can convince yourself that smoking makes sense. So by the end of the book, if you still choose to smoke, that's fine. Nobody's going to chastise you. You just, you can't look at yourself and lie to yourself anymore. But anyway, so there was a point in that book that talks about one of the worst parts about smoking is the black cloud that hangs over you of like, I'm never, I'm stuck and I'll never get out of it. And also tied to that cloud was that family heart history stuff. So as I smoked all those cigarettes that you got to watch me smoke, every time <laughs> I was like, I, you know, I don't know if you remember, but I quit every Monday for like eight years. Not at maybe, and I might have quit for like four days or two weeks, or sometimes I would quit for 30 seconds, meaning I'd wake up Monday morning and be like, nah, fuck that, I'm going to get a pack of Newports. It was a thing that weighed on me for a very long time until I finally quit. But when I finally quit, it was, yeah, closing of that tie to I am hereditarily stuck and my fate is heart disease and death. Like that was mm -hmm. the thing. I, that's part of my panic attacks. Part of my anxiety was, oh, man, I'm just going to die just like my sister, just like my dad. And I thought that while I smoked a pack a day like a psychopath. <laughs> so quitting, as you as you just mentioned, was definitely a closure of not only a closure, but an opening up of like, oh, if I could stop doing this thing, I thought I'd never be able to stop doing. What else can I stop or start doing? And I haven't. I, it's weird to think how little I've thought about cigarettes since, which is almost nothing. And I will attribute that to also anyone listening that might smoke. The difference between, and I've said this to so many people or like ask me about quitting, instead of instead of somebody who really loves smoking that's trying really hard every day to not do the thing they love, which is how some people try to quit things, and that sounds like a nightmare, versus, oh, I'm just no longer somebody who does this thing. Yeah. And if you have the ability to like really, really adopt that mindset, 
I, you won't even, you don't even think about it. It's really nice. So pivoting back to growing up and also to, I guess we'll pivot back to the U.S. about the divorce early and we didn't really cover it. They never got divorced, but, but there were times where we were we, where we like, you guys should just get divorced because you don't look like you're having a good time. <laughs> so anytime I hear about people like stay together for the kids, I'm one of the kids that's like, nah, you don't need to do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> unless they're like six and you're going to destroy like their life early or, or make it weird like custody battle. But by like by the time I was 18, I was like, you guys can do it. But what was interesting was my mom said something really like devastating, which was if I leave your dad, he'll die. And that's because my mother had this amazing state of New Jersey Department of Education health insurance. And my dad was on like disability. So like all my dad's stuff, the heart transplant, if something happened to him and he had to get airlifted to Temple Hospital, which would bury most people without health insurance or would bury my dad if, my, if he wasn't on my mom's. So just the idea that my mom had to, that had to be a factor in her life. Like I'm not having the greatest time, but I also care about this man that I'm married to and I'd rather he not die. My dad was not a monster. We didn't see eye to eye on a lot of stuff, but as he was sick and as like I saw him, you know, go through the strokes. So my dad has two strokes and I remember just watching a grown man struggle to learn how to talk again. Like, so compassion comes in there. You're like, oh shit, like that's gotta be tough, right? So there was like a softening over the years as I was dealing with my own anxiety and learning how to like calm myself down, I think it softened everything around me in a way. You know, when you live at your parents' house growing up, it feels in some ways, I'm, I assume for most people, like a semi-oppressive regime. <laughs> like, because you, you gotta do what they say. You know, my house, my rules kind of thing. And then when you're out and you can do your own thing, then you can make decisions on like, on your relationship, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the parameters of it. It's no, I'm no longer the person doing things for somebody because they're telling me to do it. I'm doing things because I get to decide what kind of relationship we're gonna have. There was a point with my dad where like, even though we were like butt heads, I would try to wake up every day with like a clear, clear heart. <laughs> clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. <laughs> <laughs> but like, with like a clear like, oh, I'll give, we're, we're gonna, I'm gonna give you another crack at this, right? Not like he's got to prove himself or do anything different, but like, I'm not going to go into this thing with animosity or preconceived stuff. I'm going to wake up and give you the benefit of the doubt. And if that goes awry, we'll try again tomorrow. And that was, so that's kind of how the end of my, the end of the last few years of my dad's life felt for me of less weighty, less animosity, more of just like an opening and a clearing for possibility. My dad had a stroke and I remember it because I was like in the next room and I actually, I remember just freezing. I was like 14 or 15 in my room as I heard like my mom and brother's stuff and the paramedics come up. I didn't even go out there. I was like, I don't know if I can deal with this shit. You know, then from then on, he was pretty relatively not doing well. I mean, not not doing well. He was fine. He still smoked cigarettes. He still went golfing like every day <laughs> in, in some capacity. He laid, my father, from the time I was like eight years old to the time he died, pretty much spent most of his days laying on the couch in his tidy whities <laughs> <laughs> So he lived a pretty leisurely life when he wasn't working. So after the strokes, he was on disability. He couldn't really get the jobs that he had before. Um, so it was interesting. There was a time in my like late teens where like me, my brother, and my dad 
all delivered pizza. <laughs> oh, and we would see each other. It was great. Because like, like he could do that. He just wanted some like walking around money. <laughs> so as he was like sick, like he wasn't like on death's door. But there was always, there was always something would come up, complications, something. And I don't know if you're aware, but like when you have a heart transplant, the anti-rejection medicine that they give you actually like eventually kills your kidneys or, or I think it's your kidneys. Oh, wow. So the reason they say a heart transplant, like people live like 10 to 15 years, what happens is after that time, you probably need like a kidney transplant. And then if that works, maybe you got some more years, that kind of thing. So he was like in and out of the hospital and doing stuff. So I was living in, in the same town that I grew up in and I was about 21 years old. 9-11 happens. And I was like, all right, everyone was like, the world's weird now. And it did feel, I remember the feeling of like, oh, shit's about to get, <laughs> little did we know how weird 2020 would be. Yeah. But like, like late 2001 was very weird and uncomfortable. And my girlfriend's family was going to move to Florida. They're like, we're moving to Tampa. And they were like, do you want to come? And I was like, look, I've never left my hometown. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, I'll move. I'll do it. Why not do it now? And I moved to Tampa. So that was just like a couple year move. And then I moved back. God, the move to California was just a, I was 25 years old and I wanted to live in California. Like, I wish I had a better <laughs> origin story. I had a buddy that was living out here down in like San Diego. Um, I think he was growing weed. <laughs> he went to jail for a couple of years, but I was going, I was like, never, you know, why not? Why not do the thing now? So, you know, got in my car, moved to California. And as far as my dad's relationship, it was very like hands off at this point. Right. The one thing just to back it up about my mother and my father, sure. is they were always very supportive of me. So even if we did animosity, like if I'm like, I'm going to do art, they're like, yeah, you're good at art, do art. And then when I was like, I, you know, I really like comedy. They were like, go for it. They're very supportive of, of me. And my dad's support was weird because he'd be like, he'd tell people, this is the one thing I found about my dad. He would always tell people wonderful things about me and my brother. So if you, if you run into like one of my dad's friends or like one of my friends, they would be like, oh man, pops loved you guys. He was, he would just rave about you too. And we were just like, oh, cause he never told us once. <laughs> he was, he rarely was he like, great job. But apparently to everyone else, he's like, my kids are the shit. So that was, that was another thing funny to hear later to be like, oh man, he like, to feel like some guy just thinks you're a shit burger. <laughs> and then from the friends, they're like, no, we thought you were the cat's meow. But I think similar to the, um, the, the cloud of smoking that I mentioned earlier, every time I got a phone call from home, so like when I moved away in like my early 20s, every time I got a call for like four years, I was immediately like, this is it. I was like, oh, this is the call. So when it finally was the call, it was actually oddly a relief of, oh, I don't have to carry that every time the phone rings. You mm -hmm. know, people, people who, who maybe their parents aren't passed probably are like, that sounds insane to be relieved. Like even when my dad actually died, and we'll get into that later, of like the, the him passing versus the day before, he was in such a bad way with like machines and stuff like that. And when he passed, I was like, oh, good for you. Because he, you know, after like 10 years of that, it was a sense of like, you know, people say that you hear it. Oh, you're at peace now. But to see it, you're like, oh, I know what that means now. <laughs> you know, I was talking to somebody about um, it was in jujitsu. Somebody was talking about getting like choked out. 
about like what happens when you get choked out. Does it hurt? They're like, no, it's actually like euphoric. <laughs> like, so I assume other than like a grisly, terrible death, passing on is, a, you know, life is tension, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that passing on, I'm going to hope that is just an, an, a total release of that. <laughs> Let's hope. Maybe I'll see Brittany in hell one day and I'm like, we were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's on fire. <laughs> Brittany, I lied to you. It's terrible. <laughs> so I just moved to California in 05. And I think early 06 is when I got that call of like, hey, dad's not doing too good. You should come home. Around this time, I was kind of just out there waiting tables, you know, not doing much. I come home, spend a couple of days with my dad as he's like dying. And it was cool. Like it, that was like the softest we'd ever been, if that makes sense. Yeah. There was no reason to, for any like any whatever. Plus, he was like hopped up on drugs, too. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was super nice. He's like, OK, you know, he's kind of like he's he's lucid. He's on these machines. But he's walking, he's moving around, he's walking around, he's talking, he's doing fine. Then over like the course of three days, it gets worse. Like he's not moving around. Then he's got a breathing tube. So there's a lot going on. There's, there's, you know, my mom and his sister secretly like in the corner having to like decide, well, what do we do? What's weird is like who decides if somebody else dies? If, if you got to, if you got to pull a plug or like who, who, who's in charge of that? The family member, the wife? So, like, there's a lot of weird stuff swirling on. All the while, he's just laying there, not looking great, eyes glazed over. It was weird to see somebody, I, I call it dead, but being, but being alive by machines. My uncle lives, like, 20 minutes from the hospital, and he's like, yo, I'm going to take the boys. We're going to go watch. There was, like, a UFC fight or something on that night or a boxing match. We're going to get some pizza. We'll come back in the morning. And I was like, all right, cool. I was like, I'll leave my phone on, call me if anything happens. Um, so I guess like my phone died or some shit happened. But we go to the hospital the next morning and I, I'm in front of, I walk fast, like I'm a speed walker. So I get in there before everyone else and I walk into this room and it's just my dad, right? No machines under a blanket, he's chilling. And I'm like, oh, oh, he looks better, right? And then I realize he's got tape on his eyes and I'm like, oh, he's dead. And right when I realized that, these nurses come running around the corner like a movie. And they're because they did not want like they probably somebody probably should have been there to not let me walk in. But to me, like they were all worried. And I was like, nah, man, it's fucking cool. Do you know what I mean? So the mix was there was this dual. I'm relieved. But now I'm like incredibly sad. You don't realize that when somebody dies like that's it. There's nothing else you can say or do or talk. You know, that's it. And I remember walking over to the bed and just like touching his feet and his feet were still warm. Like it was, it was weird. You freak. Yeah, a little freak. Yeah, exactly. Sucked on his toes. <laughs> like, yeah. My mom came in. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm doing your job, Linda. <laughs> no, I, I, but I remember just like, I, I had like a moment there and, and of just like, I think about that moment sometimes when I'm like stuck with something or stuck with somebody and I'm like, you dummy, just do or say the thing because you might not be able to. And there's nothing worse than not being able to once that door is like actually shut. 
I, I think you've been to funerals or people have died where like there's that weird mix of like you go in and out of it, right? You're just like a normal day and then all of a sudden you're crying about some shit, talking to some friends. And so, you know, there's waves of it. Hold on, let me tell you about the funeral real quick. <laughs> my, so my brother at the time had just become like a pretty hardcore born again Christian, right? <laughs> and so I have, I have never before this really spoken in public. And I'm a pretty shy person. You might not believe it because I'll run around naked and do comedy and stuff. But in general, like, I'm a pretty like, I don't like uh, public speaking at this point. So I was going to speak. But then before at the funeral, I was like, I don't think I want to speak. And they're like, that's fine. But then my brother goes up, right? And he starts going into like this thick, thick Jesus. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say diatribe, but it started to get a little like preachy or repenty. And I, I remember having the moment of like, I've got to come out of the bullpen and save this thing. <laughs> I was like, I was like, he's bringing this thing down and we're at a funeral and that's hard to do. <laughs> so I remember having to go up and just like palate cleanse. So I went up, you know, just spoke and, and like from the heart, like that was the first time I really, really opened up about our relationship and about things and stuff in front of human beings. And like I said, and some of it was funny and they laughed, some of it was sad and they cried. And I felt the power. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but what was interesting was like in leaving, there was that closed door of like, all right, well, there's a relief to that. And then there was this weird opening tiny door that opened of like, well, that's interesting that I just learned a new thing about myself. That other people are like, hey, man, we think you should do this thing. So it's oddly a time of like, you know, same paradox of like sadness, but also like, well, what am I going to do when I go back to L.A.? Now I have like another thing to think about. Like one door closes, another door opens. <laughs> Did you just make that up? I'm, you know what? Let me Google it real quick. <laughs> my dad's funeral was the first time I did stand-up comedy. <laughs> and what I mean by that is the first time I wrote a thing out and was like, oh, this part's meant to be funny, and then did it, and it worked. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm a magician. <laughs> like, but like, it's interesting to think in hindsight of, we think about death, right, as a thing. Like your, the death of your mother, the death of my father, and how hard it must have been. But I live in this weird world recently of like everything's connected, right? So I'd like to think of the idea of like, oh, if my dad didn't die, we would have never, I, we would have never met and lived together. Yeah. Because I wouldn't have been on the comedy path. I wouldn't have been living in this area. I wouldn't have met you at this place. Like, and I like to try to do that with everything. Of like, whoa, what, what, what came of this? But yeah, so that was it. I was, I had just moved to California, and from doing that, after the funeral at that little party you have where you eat all the food, <laughs> people were like, "You should do stand-up comedy." And I, and before that, I was like a huge fan of stand-up, but I was like, "That's not a thing people do." <laughs> and then I like when I went back to California, it was like that seed was planted. And then I started doing it, and it was fantastic, um, and it changed my life. Um, so thanks, Pops. Most of us may not remember the 1999 film Big Daddy as dead parent canon, but the entire premise rests on five-year-old Julian, played by the Sprouse twins, tracking down his biological father after his mom dies from cancer. Julian's biological father is responsible Kevin, 
who takes business trips to China and is engaged to Corinne, the former Hooters waitress turned podiatrist. But since Kevin is out of town when Julian arrives on his doorstep, his slacker roommate Sonny, played by Adam Sandler, winds up becoming the interim parent. At first, Sonny only agrees to take care of Julian because he thinks it could win back his ex-girlfriend, who broke up with him for not having any life plans. But unfortunately, she's already taken on a new lover, Sid. So now, until Kevin gets back from China, Sonny is stuck with little Julian. And it is hard at first. Hi, welcome to McDonald's. What can I get for you? Okay, what do you want? Cheerios. Cheerios, they don't got Cheerios. What else? Lasagna. Lasagna? What the hell's the matter with you? We'll take uh, hotcakes and sausage. Uh, sorry, sir. We stopped serving breakfast. What are you talking about? We're four seconds late. No, you're 30 minutes and four seconds late. We stopped serving breakfast at 10.30. Ah, shit! No, no, no. Don't cry. I'm sorry. I wasn't cursing at you. I was cursing at the lady. Nice parenting. Hey, thanks. Are you my therapist? Take a walk. You want a Happy Meal? We'll get you one of those Happy Meals. You got a Happy Meal? Can we get a Happy Meal? Will somebody get the kid a Happy Meal? Sonny calls his own father, who doesn't believe he has what it takes to be a parent. And in that scene, we see how Sonny's father parented Sonny, harshly and without much acceptance. So Sonny decides he's going to parent Julian, and he's going to be different than his own dad was. He lets Julian call himself Frankenstein. He lets him dress how he wants, eat 30 packets of ketchup, and throw sticks in the way of rollerbladers. While at the park one day, Sonny gives Julian a, a valuable lesson about how your parents affect you as an adult. But buddy... Real dads aren't always that great, you know. I got a real dad, and the guy's out of his mind. He's been telling me what to do my whole life. He never lets me figure stuff out on my own. A lot of dads are like that. That's why so many people grow up nuts. Look at this guy over here. He's probably a nice little boy just like you, and then his dad messed his mind up. Now look at him. Hey, buddy, who won the Jets game, you know? Who cares? Let it go, pal. He can't control you anymore. What are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you're a loser. You're mad at your dad, mad at me. I forgive you. <laughs> when I thought about that scene, the phrase you're mad at your dad, not at me, mm -hmm. reminds me of, I, I call them hand-me-down beatings. And I actually write about it semi-frequently, the idea of my brother would beat me up, but it would be for something stupid. It'd be like, I wore his new kids on the block sweater or some shit, right? <laughs> and I was like, that seems excessive. And then I would realize eventually that like, oh, it was a hand-me-down beating. Like my dad would like pick on my brother, get mad at him or something. He's got to take that energy and send it somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote a little piece. It was about Black Panther because that suit that he has um, in Black Panther is something that takes energy and then he can put it towards something else, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, we all absorb energy all the time from people, and then we get to decide what we do with it. And sometimes it just comes out, like, instinctively, like, I've worked in restaurants where, like, somebody would yell at me, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I realize I'm yelling at the busboy about some shit. So, that scene where he goes, you're mad at your dad, not at me, that sentence just perfectly encapsulates, like... The way that guy's energy came out was like to be gothy and sad at the world and mad at the world. <laughs> but in reality, he could just like hash it out with his dad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's and, like a transferring of what you wish yeah. you could talk about the the first person with. You're transferring it on to the second person or you're transferring it on in a negative way yeah. elsewhere. 
and you can pass transfer it to somebody else in a negative or positive way. You can bury it into like art or writing. You can stuff it down inside, but you know, uh, Brene Brown said something about like creative energy doesn't, it, met it metastasizes. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't come out in healthy ways, it's gonna come out in ways you don't want it to. But so that scene in that movie in general, like his relationship with his father, like to me watching that movie is like, what, you mean a giant man-child who can't get his shit together? Has a not great relationship with his dad? That sounds pretty familiar. I can get on board with that. So, so again, that's a weird transfer of energy. I'm going to take this energy my dad gave me and I'm gonna to try to do the opposite. Mm -hmm. And what you realize is the opposite ain't that great either. Right. Let your kid eat 30 ketchup packets and wear whatever he wants sounds fun. Similar to like me, there, there was a large portion of my life where I was like, I was trying to maximize freedom. And to me, maximizing freedom was not having responsibilities. The job that gave me the easiest time off, the re relationships that were like, whatever. And then as I got older, realizing like, oh man, real freedom comes from a structure and like aiming towards something. So when I think about like that movie, but it's that idea of, hey man, super rigidity doesn't, isn't great. Also, 30 packets of ketchup probably isn't that great either. And then finding the balance, finding the equanimity in, okay, what kind of structure can I form that will set me up to do the things I want to do and to, and to be a responsible human being, but also allow me to have fun. Eventually, Child Services finds out that Sonny is not, in fact, Kevin, and he has to go to court for impersonating Kevin because apparently it's a federal crime. But in court, Sonny is on the stand with his own father cross-examining him because he's a powerful lawyer and this is just a normal thing to do. Because if there's anyone out there who doesn't think that Sonny should be a parent, it's his dad. And there's this moment they have together, a softness. Hey, I love you. What? You don't have to be scared, it's all right. What are you talking about? I'm not scared. If I get custody of Julian, I'll be his father forever. And that scares you because you think there's a good chance I might fail. Sonny, it's more than a chance. It's a certainty. You're wrong, Dad. You can be scared that I might get pickpocketed in a bad neighborhood or I might break my leg skiing, but don't be scared about me being a dad because I will not fail at that. I can't. I love this kid too much. I love him as much as you love me, Dad. And I'm going to give him advice, and I'm going to guide him, and I'm going to be there for him whenever he needs me. I'll fly to New York to be at his court case, even if I disagree with why he's there in the first place. Sonny, you work in a toll booth. Don't be scared about me making money. I am in love with a beautiful girl who makes plenty of it. She'll be my sugar mama. Oh, I got to get me one of those. I know this is the right thing to do, Dad, because I would die for this kid just so he wouldn't have to feel one ounce of sadness. That's why you're here right now, to protect me, to be scared for me, to be a good father. And that's exactly what I'm gonna be. Hello, Dad? Yeah, I just wanted to say I love you. Hi, Mom. Could you put down the phone for a second? This front kind to Papa. Can I borrow that when you're done? Your Honor, my son deserves this kid. The one thing about my dad was like, unlike Sonny's dad in the movie, who's like a powerful lawyer, 
My dad did. My dad wasn't. So I think about my friends growing up whose dad, parents were like businessmen or like owned companies or entrepreneurs. And those kids kind of like grew up into that. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, my dad laid around in his underwear. <laughs> so anytime I, I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but like I have a really hard time just watching like a movie if, unless I feel like I've earned it. Because like laying around and doing nothing to me is relaxing for some people. For me, I'm just like, no, (laughs) it's not. I don't want to be my dad. It's how how unfulfilling that looks. By seeing the ways in which his own tough dad failed to parent him tenderly, Sonny wanted to go the opposite direction. And although Sonny doesn't get custody of Julian in the end, they end up staying close as step uncle and step nephew. Sonny married Layla, who is Corinne's sister, and Corinne and Kevin are Julian's parents. You get it. You have a belly button? Well, we all have belly buttons. You know what? We all love Yoo-Hoo. Especially Yoo-Hoo with a little rum. What's rum? You don't know what rum is. Rumpelstiltskin? Rumpelstiltskin. Rumpelstiltskin's a good man. So are you guys. Hey, stay clean. Stay focused. Stay strong. Frankenstein, have fun with your friends. I don't, it was just, you know, you were right. Like, we are dumb 90s comedy dummies. (laughs) And kind of back to you for a second. You know, it's interesting. So you were born, what, 88? So you, your Mm -hmm. mom passed in, what, like, 94? Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to dive into you. You've gone to therapy. I have not. I would love to. Um, (laughs) But, like, I was reading a thing about people that do things repetitively, watch things over and over. Part of it is, like, a could be, like, a trauma response. And I was interested because I remember, like, you could watch... You could watch the same movie like a thousand times. Yeah. Um, and you are you are you are firmly in the mid 90s wheelhouse. Totally. And is, do you, is that is that live in that world for you? 90s fashion, 90s music, 90s movies, mm-hmm. 90s TV shows. I mean, my like obsession with that, like I'm kind of stuck in a loop sometimes. And it mm-hmm. took a like whenever I would, you know, be really depressed, like the thing that I would turn to most would be 90s music or, you know, rewatching Buffy or rewatching like Mm -hmm. 90s studio comedies for the millionth time. And so, yeah, I think that that was like a major coping mechanism of mine. It's take it's weirdly taken a lot of effort for me to venture outside of those genres and 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 being able to see the value and kind of like watching more present day shows that are on and, and being able to see those as just as just as fulfilling um, because it is, yeah, it's like leaving something behind in a way. Yeah. And and the reason I mentioned it is like, this isn't, these weren't your like, like you said, you were six when Mm -hmm. your mom passed and you were like 10, 12 in the nineties. And so this wasn't like your middle formative teenage. This is pretty young for, for that to be the ones that stuck. That's why I asked side, weird side note. This may be true or not, but my buddy at work mentioned it the other day that, that dumb and dumber that when they go to Aspen, Mm-hmm. Did you know that that ho- that hotel is the the Shining Hotel? Oh no, I didn't know that. So he was telling me that. So they shot at the same hotel the, the Shining was in, and they, he was telling me the story about Jim Carrey when he was they were when they were staying there. Like one night, had like a full on conversation, either in like dream or awake, with like his dad's ghost. Holy and, shit! And like didn't want to keep filming there, and like Jeff Daniels convinced him to to keep going, but like. He just told me that the other day and I was like, well, that's interesting because you watch Dumb and Dumber and you like see that scene where they're going up the stairs and each other on the legs. And that was like yeah. after that happened. <laughs> wow. I'm going to have I mean, I'm going to have to rewatch it now. Yeah. And I'm going to have to look it up to see if that's a true story. <laughs> yeah. But that is wild. So um, a few years ago, maybe like two years ago, somebody posted a New York Times article 
and it was about Atlantic City. It was actually about this, the suburbs, this little island I, I lived, grew up on called Brigantine. That's a little island. Ironically, it was about how the people that were there previously weren't taking kind to the immigrants, so to speak, or the influx of young people coming in for the, for the casino jobs. So in like the in the like the late 70s, Brigantine, New Jersey was like this sleepy little beach town. All of a sudden casinos open up, thousands of people come in and move into this sleepy little beach town. And it's kind of like a, you know, get off our land kind of kind of thing. Um, you're going to change the island. And it's actually ironically happening now with new businesses and new younger people moving in there now. It's a very similar thing of like they're not open to change. It's kind of like America. But this article was my dad was just like one of the people interviewed in it, and it was about how, you know, he, he would work till whatever, and then he'd get off work, and he'd change in the car, and he would take me and my brother to, like, baseball practice, you know, and, and it was just talking about, like, you know, I grew up with a lot of animosity, and, you know, we didn't, like, see eye to eye with a lot of stuff, but then when you see that, like, very human, very, like, oh, he's just being a dad, and, and in the interview... In the interview, he was about like my age when I was reading the article. Mm -hmm. So he was like 36 at the time of the of the article being written. So I was like, oh, yeah, I never thought about my dad as a human. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Just being yeah, like totally. a person with children and a family and trying to figure all that out. He was just like dad. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that was like. You know, seeing my friends in the same, I don't have any kids, but seeing my friends going through the same stuff, I was like, oh, it's just that same thing. Yeah. It's just a person doing, being a good dad. <laughs> Whereas during the time, I have it as like, oh, he's the guy that yells at me during baseball practice. <laughs> but he's, he's also... He's the guy who's got money right now. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> he's got... He's also... The guy who's leaving work, changing in the car, and spending his afternoons doing that for us. Yeah. So it kind of just it was another um, um, like POV on that, mm -hmm. which was like softening. Growing up, comedy was, and you'll hear it from a lot of comedians, which is like dinner tables tense. I know how to make it not tense. It was a defense mechanism to alleviate suffering in the household. You know, comedy is funny. It's like, is it something you're good at or something you develop for it? I, I like to think that I, my brain works in a comedic fashion. Like, I, do you remember the, the bare naked ladies? I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember hearing that line and being like, yeah, that may, I get that completely. So early on, it was a thing. And I just growing up, we used to just watch HBO comedy half hour. Like, like I'm a huge comedy fan. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do is laugh. One of the things I miss most about L.A. and, and stand-up was sitting around with your buddies and just laughing at dumb shit. Mm -hmm. Comedy friends are the best friends. Not the super sad ones that are boring and weird, but like <laughs> the ones that are just like I lived in L.A. I lived in California for like four years. And when I started doing comedy, I finally made friends like I had growing up. Mm-hmm. Just those ones that were like unafraid to talk shit and like get in there and be real with you. You know, as I got older, the mix of my dad's funeral and I was also working at Road Trip Nation. So for people unfamiliar, Road Trip Nation is a company. We had a series on PBS. I used to drive around and, and like I was on the college tours. We would drive around and show like film screenings at colleges. And I would speak at colleges about 
Road Trip Nation, which was essentially about high school, college kids following their passions. So I would live on this RV for two months out of the year, just continually watching and showing these films about people following their passions. And then at some point I was like, well, what, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I like comedy I, and I enjoy it. And apparently I'm pretty good at it. Let me give it a shot. So then I started doing it. I did an open mic in New York and then one in Denver and then one in Seattle. And then when I moved back to California, I did it pretty regularly. And it was the first time since I moved to California where I was like, oh, I've got a, I've got a purpose right now. Before that, I was like just working in restaurants like, oh, what the fuck am I doing with my life? And now I'm like, oh, I know what I'm doing with my life. And now my restaurant job is just what I do to pay the bills. I, I did comedy for a while. I was out of it for a while. And I struggled for a long time with this dichotomy of I want to talk about things that are serious. And my fear was, are, are me talking about things that I'm serious about going to detract from the comedy? And also, is the comedy going to take away my credibility to be serious about things? And recently, I've found a really sweet spot, which was, hey, dummy, comedy is the best way to go into serious topics because it's just like it was when I was a kid. It's a powerful tool to alleviate tension. So I'm at a point now where I'm like, oh, you can, my voice is returning as one that takes a lighter look at serious things. So that's a nice feeling because for a while I played in that dark, dark area of not thinking I loved comedy enough to do it. And it doesn't mean I want to be a stand-up. It means I'm still allowed to use humor to talk about what I want to talk about. Definitely. If that makes sense. Yeah. But there was a while where I struggled with like, because you think about all our friends that are successful comedians now, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, people that we know that just kept doing it and I would beat myself up for not doing it. And I was like, hey, buddy, like you didn't do it because you didn't want to do it. And yeah, it took you a while to work out the reasons why you didn't do it. But, I, but I'm at a nice spot now. But I would say it stemmed from my relationship with my father. It deepened in his passing. You know what I mean? That was kind of like the doorway to do it like as a thing out in public. And then I would say now, you know, like that, you know, finding that middle path now is really nice to soften, like, like Sonny's dad. Of like, <laughs> I don't got to be dad. I don't got to be mom. I can be me. Mm -hmm. I think it affects me in the sense that in a present moment, I'm aware that that present moment, just like my father, is going to die continuously. Right. So like, what do you got to do? What do you got to say? What do you have to be in this moment to not go to the next one and feel like you've regret or, you know, failed? You're not going to get it all right. But it's that there's a sweet spot. You're probably aware of it. And that's like flow. That's connection of, oh, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Feeling a lot different than I'm, do I'm not doing it. Right. Yeah. So my relationship with my dad and his passing and feeling the regret of that. Also, feeling the regret of other things in my life that I also let die without, do, without doing what I had to do with them. It's a powerful reminder for me to not let those moments pass yeah. without doing what I got to do. You know, when they talk about people, the, the regrets of people dying. Every fucking person that ever dies is like, oh, I wish I did this. And, you know, like, I, I know, I wish I was more true to myself. So... It's that thing. Interestingly enough, 
you know, I was upstairs in, on Kent Street at the house mm-hmm. doing yoga on the patio. It was just also a really nice patio to do yoga because it felt like we were in, like, Thailand. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of my life has been searching, right? There's, I don't know if you ever read, you know, the story of the Buddha. There's this idea that he was born into, like, a rich family and he didn't experience suffering at all, right? At all. He looked like he was sheltered. And then one day, like, ventures out and sees suffering. And he's like, what is this shit? <laughs> anyway, long story short, this guy goes out and he spends years away and, and you know, meditating and stuff. Things like eight years. Eventually, enlightened, comes home. He's talking to his mom or his dad. And, and you know, they're happy because they see, like, this really cool change in him. And then his dad or his mom was like, well, did you have to go away and do all that to get it? And he's like, no, I didn't. But I had to do that to realize that I didn't have to, if that makes sense. So for me, it's this idea of I've always been like searching and wondering, blah, 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 this external stuff. I'm a very like tactile Labrador retriever, Mr. Peanut Butter, like pleasure seeking (laughs) person. (laughs) I'm like, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And always being unsatisfied. And what I found was in that searching, in the meditation, in the going within, in the finding silence, in the spending time, not trying to find things externally, but really just like listening to yourself is where I started to find that peace. Mm -hmm. Living internally has opened up so many things externally that I think I'm going to keep it up. (laughs) Yeah. It's changed my relationship with myself and it's changed the world around me the way people interact with me and the things they tell me and the things they tell me about me continue to um, like humble me, but also make me very happy that that's how my way of being in the world, you know, has that effect on people is nice. Sometimes I feel like a robot. Sometimes I feel like a psychopath in terms of, you know, I remember even just thinking about this podcast and knowing how your relationship with your mom and, and, and whatnot and, you know, Sometimes I gotta dig in and be like, where was the grief? There, 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 wasn't, there wasn't a lack of grief, but sometimes I feel like I don't feel things as strongly as others in certain capacities. Like I know people right now that their mothers died four years ago, five years ago, six years ago, and every day they're like, they're still like, I can't get over the death of my mother, I'm devastated. And I'm like, fuck, like I almost wish I had that kind of relationship with my dad that would be that devastating. <laughs> But I also don't wish I lived that life of devastation. Yeah. So with my father, what, what has happened is, you know, general death of a person grief occurs. Um, nothing extreme because it's not like, oh, I lost my best friend. You know, <laughs> it's like right. that kind of relationship. But what has happened over the years was what my dad symbolized to me. I decided to mentally change. Like I mentioned earlier on with that article of like, so, so creating a more 3D picture of my father. And then I've even like spoken to him, you know, out loud. I've written like things in my journal about like thanking him for whatever. So there's been certain things that I've done just to as much get closure, but to in some ways make that choice kind of like we talked about doing what you want to do with energy, mm-hmm. you know, moving it where you want to move it, making the choice to take whatever energy I have with my father and move it into somewhere productive and good. If you're listening to this and you have a parent that's passed and you have things you have not said, write them a a letter, 
um, journal to yourself a conversation. Like there's there's things you can do that might sound whatever to you, but then when you in the doing of it, you know, there's that phrase, resentment is the poison that you take and hope it hurts the other person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's one of my favorite phrases because that goes for resentment, right? But it also goes for you know, over-attachment. Longing for someone is a poison that you take and hope that they're going to long for you back. Anything that is a form of over-attachment, resentment, longing, um, hatred, whatever it might be, if you have that energy and you're holding it, realizing that you can put it and take it and do other things with it other than let it destroy you. That's been part of the process of if something comes up or grief or sadness or whatever, You know, I'll just write a thing or animosity of like, I wish you were a better dad and did set me up for success. It's like, no, dummy. Your dad did what he he, He was changing in the back of the car. Yeah. Changing the back of the car. In hindsight, it's kind of like like if you start anything, you would like all the tools and tricks that are available to you to excel at it. Right. You would hope when you start a new job, the people the job are like, we're going to set you up for success. But relationships, you just kind of wing it. You wing it based on the ones you see, like you model it after ones that are around you. And if they're good, they're good. If they're bad, they're bad. So in hindsight, like I wish I had the tool of perspective earlier on. I wish somebody had mentioned like compassion and seeing things from other people's side and openness and honesty and talking about things. And it's, I think that's why I do that work now. I think the reason I do it is because it's so valuable, whether it's early childhood education, whether it's relationships, whether it's governments, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, there is, there is a power to seeing the other person as a human, being humble in your space in the relationship. So I think that the earlier you can develop that or work on it, or even just like share it and give it to your children, Um, the better every relationship they have moving forward has the possibility to be. And do you feel like that you and your dad weren't able to reach that point by the time he passed? Or do you think it was like a little too late? You know, if I had a time machine, if I could take a time machine from me in 2020, 2019, and what I know and do and feel, and take it to 20, you know, I can't do math. (laughs) My late (laughs) teens, my late teens, 1864. If I could take it back to... (laughs) my late teens and use some of that, I think I would have had a much different relationship. And I don't think, you know, even up into his passing, it got to where I don't I don't think anything can always get to where it can be. But I think it got better. But I think there was a lot of more room. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about Christian, You can follow him on Instagram at Connecting with Christian. If you want to support the podcast on Patreon, you can find it at patreon.com slash deadmomcast. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Britt27ash, B-R-I-T-T-27-A-S-H, or BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna.